Hello and welcome to True to the Bible podcast with Hunter Davis. Thanks for joining us for this lesson in our series, Who I Am, where we'll be studying the book of John and where we see that John is writing these things to everyone so they might believe and that in believing they might have life. In this awesome book where John presents the Messiah Jesus as God, we'll see lots of key truths and great application that we can apply to our own life. Well, thanks again for joining us. We hope that you enjoy this lesson. John chapter 5. If you have one of these Bibles, it is on page 1, or not 100, 713. If you're in one of these Bibles, 713, John chapter 5. Um, as you guys know, we've been going through the book of John. We're calling our series Who I Am, because John is talking about Jesus and who Jesus is. He's showing us who he is. Um, so that all might believe in Him for eternal life. And today, we're going to be talking about deflecting. And we're going to be talking about deflecting. We're going to see the third sign uh, of Jesus. Or if you guys remember, there's seven or eight signs in John, depending on if you count the resurrection or not. So there's seven different signs, we could say. And this is the third one out of the seven. And uh, it's verses 1 all the way through verse 18. And we'll see what it is, uh, and we'll talk about it. But let's read the Scripture first. Uh, Then we'll pray, then we'll get going. It says, After these things there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep, or the sheep gate, a pool, which it is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the waters to be moved, or the moving waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool to stir up the waters, Whoever then first, after stirring up the water, stepped into them, was made well from whatever disease which he was afflicted. A man was there who had been ill for thirty-eight years. When Jesus saw him laying there, he knew that he had already been there a long time in that condition. He said to him, Do you wish to get well? And the sick man answered him and said, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But when I am coming down, another steps before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat or your pallet, and walk. Immediately the man became well, picked up his pallet, and began to walk. Now it was a Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your mount, your uh, mat or your pallet. But he answered them and said, He who made me well is the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus that had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking to kill him all the more, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but he's also calling God his own Father and making himself equal with God. All right, let's pray. Dear God, we just come before you and thank you for the save given to us. I pray that as we uh, look at the Scriptures that we would find application from the truth of your Word and we'd be encouraged or convicted by the Holy Spirit as needed. God, we love you. Pray all through Jesus' name. Amen. All right, deflecting. That's what we're going to be talking about today. Um, And we're going to see it in the whole thing. Uh, throughout the the passage, especially at the end. But this is a definition of deflecting. It's to turn aside 
or to cause a turn side to bend or to deviate. So it's when something's coming at you, if you deflect it, right, you're making it go away from you when it's coming at you, right? And so we're going to be talking about deflecting glory. Uh, a lot of times in our life we uh, get honor or glory or praise, and uh, it's very easy to take it and to absorb it rather than deflect it and give the glory to God. Uh, when I think of an example of deflecting glory, this is the guy I think of. His name's Tim Tebow. Okay, all of you guys have heard of him, right? And I was going through, I was looking for examples of when he deflected glory uh, to God or to his teammates or to his coaches or whoever, and there's so many. It's like hard to like choose one. But this is a video of him. This is when he was in the NFL. Okay, so this is when he's a little bit older and he's still deflecting the glory. This is a, he was, uh, at this point, He'd taken over for the Denver Broncos. He'd gone four and one, and he just had a good victory over the Jets. And this is an interview. I don't know if you can hear me over the fans all the way over there. What comes over you with five minutes to go? Well, you know, first and foremost, you know, I gotta thank my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and thank my teammates, but because those guys believed in me and stuck with me, and we stuck with each other for 60 minutes. And, you know, at the end, what I can say about this team is we have a resilient team. We have a tough team and, and a team that's going to keep fighting for 60 minutes. And, you know, at the end, you know, offensive line was blocking hard. Receivers were working hard and defense got us the ball back, you know, a bunch. And we just kept fighting and tried to find a way at the end. Of course, these fans in Denver, they love you. But nationally, I've never seen a guy that provokes so much stuff, good or bad. What do you feel like attributes to that? Sure, but I know one thing is, you know, I'm extremely blessed. You know, God has blessed me with so many people that support me. You know, a great family that supports me, great teammates, and, and a great coaching staff, and, and that's what I'm focused on. All right, so as you can see in that, and in all of his other interviews, if you've ever watched Tim Tebow interview, he always gives glory to God first, and then to other people, and he never absorbs the glory for himself. And uh, you guys are pretty young, so you probably weren't around when he won the Heisman. But, I mean, you may have been like little, little kids, but you probably didn't watch it or remember it. But you can go back and look up someday his Heisman speech. And it's literally like 10 minutes of him just telling about how good all these other people and God is. He just starts off with saying, first I want to thank my Lord Jesus Christ and God my Savior. And then he goes in and he's like, I wouldn't be here if it weren't for this guy and this guy and this guy and this guy. and these. You know what I mean? And that's classic. You know, a lot of people do that, but Tim Tebow did it all the time. He was really good at deflecting glory. And he, he still is. He's still good at deflecting glory. And we, many times, should deflect glory, but instead we hog or absorb glory. We desire authority and attention. Okay? And authority and attention gives us glory. Right? Hey, girls. Authority and attention gives us glory. So when we have authority, we're kind of glorified, right? And when we have the attention on us, we're glorified. And so we desire that as humans. But really, we should be deflecting that glory, that attention, that authority uh, to God and to other people. Okay, So first, let's go over some basic context of this passage and what's going on. Okay, uh, Very first, it says, after these things, this is in verse 1, it says, After these things, there is a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the uh, sheep, or by the sheep gate, a pool. Now, first note this. This is just for you guys to write down and think about later on. Uh, but whenever you're dating, a lot of people date the New Testament books, like when were they written and things like that. You know what I'm saying? Like some people say, well, this book is written here, here, here. Well, in verse 2 when it says there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate, that indicates that there, at, at the time of his writing, there was still 
in Jerusalem and there was still a temple and all that stuff, which that got destroyed in 70 AD. Okay, so write that down if you want to, if you're like into studying that kind of stuff, because um, there's a lot of people that date the book of John in like 90 AD, but I date it usually before that, before 70 AD even, because um, of this verse is one of the, the verses that uh, plays into that. But anyway, after these things, in verse 1 it says, after these things, so what happened before this, what happened before this feast, because basically Jesus is traveling south to Jerusalem, and he gets to Jerusalem, and that's where he does this, this miracle, but what happens in between then and now? Because if you guys remember, last week we talked about um, the end of the woman at the well, the people of Sakaar believing. Okay, you guys remember that? And then after the people of Sakaar believed, he went into Galilee and he healed the, ro- uh, the royal official's son. That was the second sign. You guys all remember that? Okay, so um, he was just heading from Jerusalem and Judea back up north to Galilee. Right? And now in chapter 5 it says now he's heading back south. Okay, So even if we don't have the synoptic gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, even if we don't have those, we know there's a significant amount of time between basically chapter 4, verses 40, like four, 43, 44, and five, chapter 5, verse 1. There's a big gap there because he just went to Galilee from Jerusalem. Now he's going from Galilee. Uh, he just went from Jerusalem to Galilee. Now he's going from Galilee to Jerusalem. So he stayed there for some, you know, and back then there wasn't cars, right? So it's not like you just hop in your car every day and drive somewhere. Like this is a long travel, so it's not like he would just go up there and two days later come back. And so there's this time period. And so what happened during this time in Galilee? Okay, there's, a la- there's actually a long time lapse. Most people say between 12 and 20 months Jesus spent in Galilee. Okay, Galilee's up north. Okay, Galilee's up north and then uh, Jerusalem's in the south. A lot of people say he spent 12 to 20 months up there. So in the Synoptic Gospels, and you guys actually have a handout too this week that uh, gives a little bit of like the times and uh, times that things happen throughout the Synoptic Gospels. But basically, he goes up to Capernaum, that's Galilee. He settles in Capernaum. He's rejected in Nazareth. That's all up in Galilee. Okay, that was after what we talked about last week, basically. Okay, then uh, his disciples, okay, there's two different callings of his disciples. I think two different callings. Uh, when he's in Galilee in this year, basically. Uh, One of them, and these are found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All this stuff is found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, His disciples are called, and they leave everything to follow him. I think, personally, I think that's kind of right at the end of when he's about to come back to Jerusalem in chapter 5-1 of John. Uh, But there's another calling, too, and I think that was early on in the Galilean ministry, so maybe uh, right after he got back from Sakaar or something like that. Matthew, you guys know Matthew or Levi, he's the tax collector, right? And he was called during this first year up in Galilee area. Uh, he does, Jesus does what they call like a tour of Galilee, um, which is maybe bad phrasing, but basically he's going around Galilee with his disciples and healing and doing miracles and teaching. Okay, so that's what he's doing for a whole, basically a year. So he's saying 12 months to 20 months he's up there teaching and doing miracles. Some of the important miracles that he did are some of the like popular ones. He healed Peter's mother-in-law. Okay, you guys remember that story? He healed healed a leper, which was a big deal. You guys remember the story of the paralytic who was lowered through the roof by his four friends? He did that in Galilee before John chapter 1. Okay, so he did that up in Galilee. He's already done that now. There's also, which plays into this a little bit, um, which we won't really talk about a lot, but he healed a demon-possessed man on the Sabbath in Galilee before he comes down to Jerusalem. Um, which today we're going to talk about the Sabbath, and the, the Pharisees are mad at him for doing, uh, and, it, and John says for doing these things, plural. 
on the Sabbath. So there are multiple things. One of those things was healing a demon-possessed man in Galilee um, early on in uh, before this. And so he does this tour. He's healing and he's teaching. And now he's, after about a year of doing that, he's going back south. So how long did Jesus, uh, how long was Jesus in his ministry? Does anybody remember? 30 years. Three years. Three years. 30 years close. He was, he was about 30 years old, okay, total, right? But three years of ministry, right? And so uh, if we're looking at John, it's kind of strange because like, well, at the end of John, right, he writes, now, if I was to write everything Jesus did, we couldn't even fit it in a book. I mean, that's my paraphrase, right? But that's what John says. And we see that because he spent a year teaching and healing and doing miracles that John doesn't even write about here, okay? which is, is pretty cool. Okay? But all this happens, and now he's heading back to Jerusalem. He gets to Jerusalem, and here's what happens. This is the healing, and we're going to talk about it. I'm going to read it, um, and we'll talk about it as well because I want to just kind of go over everything before we talk about today's lesson. Okay? It says, After these things, there was a feast. Sure. Sure. Wi-Fi issues, guys. All right, there we go. No Wi-Fi. All right, so look at verse 1 again. It says, After these things there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Okay, so he's going to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the sheep, or by the sheep gate. The word gate's not actually in there. We just think it's the sheep gate. Uh, there's a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In this lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, and lame. And then skip on to verse 5. It says, A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him laying there, he knew that he had already been there a long time in that condition. He said to him, Do you want to get well? And the sick man said to him, Sir, I have no man to put me in the water when the water is stirred up. But when I'm coming down, another steps before me and just said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And immediately the man became well. So this is the healing. Okay, This is the third sign. It's this guy that's at this pool, which we'll look at. Okay, And he thinks that if he can get in the pool, it's going to magically heal him. And Jesus comes up to him and says, Hey, do you want to be well? And he doesn't say yes. He just says, I can't get in the pool. And then Jesus heals him on the spot. Okay, That's, that's the third sign. So the first thing we're going to look at is the man. We're going to do this a little bit different, okay? We're going to look at uh, three different things, and we're going to be skipping around in the passage throughout, okay? So we already got the flow of it. Now we're going to look at uh, some different things. First, we're going to look at the man. The first thing uh, is that you need to know about this guy is he's, he's unique, okay? Um, and that's not on the, on the thing or anything, but he's unique because this, he, this healing is unique. And the more I study it, the more I'm like, this is a weird healing. Okay, there's a lot of different things with this guy that just it's just not normal for what Jesus usually does with healings, at least the ones that are recorded. Okay, at least the ones that are recorded. So let's look at it. Several things. First thing is that uh, this guy had been paralyzed for 38 years. We don't know if he was actually paralyzed or not. It says he was ill, but if you look at like um, verse seven, it says the guy says, "Hey, there's no man to put me into the water." So then sometimes people think that maybe he was crippled or paralyzed or something like that. That's why on um, The Chosen, you know, he's, he's, he can't walk, right? He's crippled. That's why they did that because of verse 7. It kind of indicates that he had something wrong with him, like to where he couldn't move very well. So we don't know if he's paralyzed, but he's been ill this, uh, for 38 years. This is in verse 5. Look at it. It says, a man was there at that place. 
that had been ill, okay, and again, that's ill, not paralyzed, for 38 years. So you've been there for 38 years. This is a really, really long time, especially considering that life expectancy for a man was just over 40 years during that time. Okay, so the life expectancy of a man was just over 40 years, and this guy had been sick or ill for 38. So he was ill for as long as most people lived, which also was rare in that day, right? Because if you're sick for that long, you usually don't live to life expectancy. But this guy's already almost to life expectancy being ill the whole time. Or if he got uh, ill or paralyzed when he was younger, he could be older than 40, right? And so this guy, uh, that's a little bit unique in and of itself. This is important for several reasons, okay? Number one, this healing, we said this last week, and we're going to say this probably with a lot of them because John says this, this is part of his theme, I think, in, in these healings. But this healing could not be a trick. Okay, you don't, you don't trick somebody into thinking that they're healed or power suggesting them into being healed um, or anything like that when they've been ill for 38 years. Okay? Uh, this, was, this, this is also, I think, important because this man was probably the longest plagued person at the pool. Okay, we don't know that. It doesn't say that for sure. But when life expectancy is 40 years, and this dude's had a, an illness for 38, and John is specifically saying the number of years that this guy's had this illness, those things lead us to believe that he's at least one of, if not the longest plagued person at the pool. Okay, which I just think is important to note in our minds as we're looking at this. Uh, Third thing that's important that plays in with the rest of the lesson and the rest of what his dialogue, I guess, with Jesus is this healing should have instigated feelings of joy and gratefulness, okay? Which is just common sense, right? You've been uh, ill for 38 years. Somebody heals you instantly on the spot. You should be pretty excited about that, right? And you should be pretty grateful for that. And that's going to come up later on. So this wasn't a trick. Um, it wasn't something, you know, It. we'll talk about it. A little bit more later but there's a this culture was very um, they sought healing a lot so there's a lot of false gods that were dedicated to healing people there were a lot of healers like you know people that would go around like trying to heal people and stuff like that and um, so th this guy 30, having it 38 years is a big deal because basically and we'll talk about it later but basically no one else could heal him you know, no one else could heal him. And so uh, that's the first thing. Just that he had it for 38 years. Okay, the next thing to look at, and we'll talk about more that, about that in a little bit. He was alone. This is in verse 7. Look at verse 7. It says, The sick man answered him and said, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool or into the uh, when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming down, another steps uh, in before me. So he has no one there with him. So this guy, where's this guy's family? Where are his friends? Okay, he's alone. He's alone. There's nobody there with him. Okay, compare this with Mark 2, 1 through 12. That's the healing of the guy that gets lowered through the roof, who had four really good friends who were going to do anything they could to get him healed. And compared to that, this guy has nothing, right? He has no one there. We don't know why he has no one. Maybe he has no family left. Okay, maybe his family has rejected him for reasons. We, we just don't know, but we know that he's alone. Okay, the next thing. Okay, this guy is either superstitious or he's desperate, or I think he's both. Okay, and we're going to talk about this one's going to we're going to talk about this one for a little while because this is in verses three and four and seven. Okay, look at verse um, three. Okay, in these lay a multitude of those who are sick, blind, lame, and withered. And now, if you guys are reading NASB, the 
The rest of three all the way through four will be either italicized or they'll be in parentheses in your Bible. Okay, so look at your Bible. They might be, if you have like a CSB, this part won't even be in there. Okay, so look at it. It says, Waiting for the waters, or the moving of the waters, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons to the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then was first at the stirring up of the water stepped in and made well from whatever disease from which they, he was afflicted. And so the reason that that's in italics, or it's in um, you know parentheses or whatever, is some of the oldest manuscripts, and we talked about manuscripts on week one, but some of the oldest, and we actually talked about this too, but some of the oldest manuscripts don't have this little section in them. Okay? Now, first thing I want to say about that, it really doesn't matter at all. Okay? It does not matter at all. Okay? Second thing is, we still know that this, this stirring up of the water thing was a real thing because look in verse 7. When the man's answering, he says, Sir, I don't have anybody to put me in the uh, pool when the water is stirred. Okay? So, we know that the water gets stirred and there's some magical thing uh, that these guys believe. So, let's look at it. Okay, first off, um, if this was, okay, because some, some people say that this section was like added later on, right? They say that like the original didn't have this in there. So if it was added later on, why would it be added later on? And if it was in there and John had it in there, why would he put it in there? That's the questions we need to ask um, when we're looking at it. But ultimately, like I said, it doesn't actually uh, change anything, so it's really not that big of a deal. But I think that if it was added later on and possibly too if John put it in there on purpose, because it was possibly an urban legend. Okay, because if you read this without those verses and you got to verse 7 and you said, Sir, I have no man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And you're not from Jerusalem and you haven't heard about that legend or whatever it is, whether it's real or legend, and you haven't heard about it, then you go, Okay. Like, that doesn't, like, what does that mean? Like, you can't put me in the pool when it's stirred up. What does that have to do with anything? Right? But if someone were to add it later, it might be because they wanted to explain that. If John put it in there, I think the same reason. I think he would want to put it in there to explain verse 7 so we could all understand uh, what it is. And so you could take it, you could leave it. It doesn't really matter. You guys can study and decide for yourself. But here's what I think is important. Um, we need to look at this and we need to say, okay, what is this stirring up of the water? Like it seems weird. Is it real? Is it fake? Is it legend? Okay, we don't know because the scripture doesn't tell us. Okay, but there's some indications here that we can look at. Okay, if you look at it, it says, look at the end of it, or right in the parentheses there. It says, waiting for the moving of water, for an angel of the Lord came down with certain seasons to the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then was first at the stirring up of the water stepped in and was made well from whatever disease they were afflicted. So part of the reason people don't like this is because it doesn't really fit with like the rest of Scripture as far as healing and like God doing things and stuff like that. Um, so there's several things that this could be. First off, it could just, like I said, be an urban legend. And that urban legend could have started from nothing or it could have started from something. Okay, these two pools, we're going to look at the pools in a second. There's actually two of them. Uh, but these two pools would be thought to be put um, under hot springs. Okay, and that's why it was like bubbling at certain times. It was stirred at some times. Um, and so if it was in hot springs, someone could have got in one time and someone could have been like, you know, healed or been like uh, feeling better after they got into the, uh, the hot springs. And then all of a sudden, power of suggestion, and they, they feel that and then all of a sudden it's a legend that, you know, whoever gets in there gets healed. Okay, that's one option. Two options. God could have healed somebody by putting them in there at one point. Right? 
and then now it's an urban legend. Okay, third option, certain seasons of times an angel actually did come down and heal people. Okay, that's a possibility as well. Okay, so uh, any of these things are possible. I think that there's, I think that there's a lot of evidence that it could have been one of the first two, where God did heal somebody in it one time, um, or where God, uh, or where somebody just got healed in it and it became an urban legend at this point. Okay, and I think that for several reasons. One is because the language of it sounds a lot like the false gods, which we'll talk about in a second, but like the false gods and stuff, what they would do, and they just inserted the Lord in there instead, which um, a lot of times, you know, for us and for them, like, we, in, we, we like influence God with our culture. You know what I mean? Like, we kind of like, like, we have our cultural things, and they may be worldly things or bad things even, and we like, well, we kind of like stick God into that. Um, and so, like, what I mean by that is if this was, like, um, if this was, like, something, like, that the people around them were doing, like, with false god healings and stuff like that, then they might say, well, we want something like They did that a lot, right? We want something like that. But instead of saying we're going to worship Diana or whoever by making this pool a pool of Diana, we're going to make it the pool of the Lord and do the same thing. So it could have been something like that. Again, this is all speculation. Okay, this isn't like this is all just thinking through it, just thinking about what it is. But the point of it is this guy, okay, this guy, he is desperate and probably superstitious. Because he thinks that all he has to do, and we'll see later on, he just thinks about the bubbling of the water. That's all he's thinking about. Okay? And later on, after Jesus heals him, we'll see it. That's our next point. He's not grateful. And he doesn't have any faith. Okay, which is interesting. Okay, so this guy is superstitious or desperate or both. Desperate because he's been there 38 years and he can't get in the pool and he wants in the pool and all he wants is in the pool. That's all he wants. And Jesus says, hey, do you want to be healed? He doesn't say, yeah, I want to be healed. He says, I want to get in the pool. That's all he thinks about. Okay, um, And that's all I would think about too if I've been there for 38 years or at least been uh, sick for 38 years. Okay, So he's superstitious or he's desperate or he's both. Okay, The next thing is he's not grateful. We see this with several miracles of Jesus. Um, I think of the ungrateful lepers and some of that. But this is probably one of the most blatant, ungrateful uh, healings uh, in the Scripture, in my opinion. Okay, look at verses 9 and verse 15. Verse 9 says, Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Okay, now this happens to several other people. Okay, think about in Acts. Remember that guy that Peter, that guy's like, Hey, uh, Peter, and I can't remember who it was. Peter and one of the other apostles are walking by, and the guy's like, hey, can you give me some alms for the poor? Like, can you give me money? And Peter's like, silver and gold I don't have, but I have I give you stand up and walk in the name of the Lord. And the guy walks, and remember he's like dancing around, and he's like rejoicing, and people are like trying to settle him down because he's so happy and grateful to God for what happened. Like, we don't see that here. Right? And first off, you might, well, maybe it just didn't put it in there. Okay, so let's go down to verse 15. Okay, the man went away, so Jesus finds him, in verse 14, Jesus finds him a second time and tells, tells him this little insert, which we'll look at in a second. Okay, but he, he talks to him again, and the man doesn't thank him there. And in going away, uh, right after Jesus went away from him, he went and he tells the, tells the Jews, which are the people looking to persecute Jesus, who Jesus was. So Jesus heals him, and then he goes to Jesus' enemies and says, hey, this is the guy who healed me in case you want to go get him. Okay, that doesn't sound very grateful to me. Because okay, he knows that these guys don't, 
don't like him because of his conversation with them. Okay, in verses 11 through 14. Okay, so he knows that they don't like him. We'll look at that in a minute too. So there's no gratefulness in this guy that I can find anywhere. And the other thing, okay, there's no indication of faith. Now this is very rare in the Gospels as well. Okay, usually, usually either before or after the miracle, the person the miracle happened to either comes to faith in Jesus for eternal life or their faith is strengthened in some way. Okay, I think of like Mary and Martha and those people when Lazarus was raised, their faith was strengthened. Okay, where a lot of other people, like the Roman official from last time, once he knew, it's like, okay, not only did he have, he had faith in the miracle, but he also placed his faith in Jesus for eternal life after, right? And so there is, I don't see any indication of this, okay? And part of, the, part of what I see here is in verse 14, okay, in verse 14. Look at it. It says, Afterwards, Jesus found him. That's the guy that he healed. Okay, so he found this guy in the temple and he said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse may happen to you. Here's my question for you guys. Why did Jesus not say, Behold, you have become well. Believe in me for eternal life and you will have it. Because he wasn't going to. What? Because he wasn't going to. Maybe. All right. Here's, it's just like, so it's just like... Um, you guys remember the rich young ruler? Okay, so the rich young ruler comes to you and says, Hey, um, I've kept the law. What do I need to do to, to get into the kingdom? He says, Get into the kingdom. And Jesus says, Well, have you kept all the law? He said, Yeah, I've kept all the law. I've kept every single bit of it. And Jesus says, Well, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and follow me, then you can get into the kingdom. Okay, first off, had the guy kept all? Had the rich young ruler kept all the law? No, he hadn't. Okay. Secondly, we need to understand: Did Jesus know his heart and his thoughts? Did he? Yeah. Yes, he did. Okay. So if he knew his heart and he knew his thoughts, then he knew that he was relying on the works of the law to get into heaven. So what did that guy need to understand before he believed, or before he would believe? What did he need to understand? Yeah, he's a sinner, right? If you, I mean, if you don't, if you're not a sinner, you don't need a savior, right? Yeah. If you're not a sinner, you don't need a savior. So Jesus was trying to help this you know, rich young ruler understand that he's a sinner, okay? And he didn't get it. And I think this is the same thing, okay? Because he says, "Behold, look what he says. Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse happens to you. What in the world could be worse than being ill for thirty-eight years?" He's saying spiritual is more important than physical. And why would he say, don't sin anymore, so nothing more? Maybe this guy didn't understand that he was a sinner. Okay, And if you look at his responses, again, this is kind of me talking here, but if you look at his responses, it really seems like he's a self-righteous guy. Okay, uh, First off, he doesn't think. He's not grateful. Second off, in verse 15, he goes and he tells these guys about this this guy that healed him, okay? And, and that just, like, to me, that's the mindset of somebody that's like, I'm good enough already, okay? Which seems weird because when you're ill for 38 years, it seems like it would break you down to where you're humble. But I'm, I'm a sinner, and, you know, sometimes despite trials in my life, I'm still prideful and self-righteous. So I don't know. But I know that there's no indication of faith that he has here. And it seems like God, Jesus is trying to get him to the point that he understands that he needs a Savior. And that's just that's what I see here um, from this. 
So why was he why was he healed? Why did Jesus heal him if he wasn't going to believe? We don't know. Um, we don't know why he healed him, obviously, because it doesn't tell us directly, and we don't know the mind of Jesus. But possibilities are, if it was an urban legend that the waters were stirred, Jesus could have been trying to crush the urban legend and say that no, I'm you know I'm the healer. God is the healer. Um, it could have just been to give proof. I mean, John listed this as one of the top ten miracles. I mean, he listed this miracle as one of the top ten. He only puts eight in here. He listed this as one of the top ten. Okay, so it must be an important one. And it does give a lot of proofs, even from the location of Bethesda and the pools, um, just to that guy being having an illness for 38 years. It's a lot of big stuff. Third possibility, um, he could have just had compassion on the guy. Like, is Jesus compassionate? Yeah, he is. He could have just felt compassion for the guy and healed him. All right? And so... Uh, we don't know why Jesus healed him, but that's the man, okay? So hopefully we have a better picture of this guy, this man. Let's look at the miracle and uh, what happened with the miracle. Okay, the miracle is in verse 8. So look at verse 6, though. It says, When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been there a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? So Jesus says, Hey, do you want to get well? Okay, and he says to him, Um... Well, the sick man says to him, Sir, I have no man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, but when I'm coming down, another steps before me. Okay, again, his, his reply, it seems bitter. Like, I don't know if it is, but like he says, Do you want to get well? And he's like, Everybody keeps cutting me in line. I mean, that's what he's saying, right? So, I mean, I don't know. His response just seems that way. So, well, what does Jesus do? Jesus just says to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. So, here's the healing. Okay, um, the first thing I want to note about the healing is that it happened in a real place. We got to talk about this because it is one of the most, one of the best archaeological finds in the New Testament. <clears throat> We've briefly talked about it before, but this place, which is back up in verse um, two, the place, the Pool of Bethesda, which has five porticos. Um, archaeology discovered this place not that long ago. Well, that was a long time ago for us, but in archaeology world, not that long ago. Um, which actually, this place had brought a lot of skepticism to the Bible before that. Okay, so a lot of people were like, John is inaccurate because we cannot find the Pool of Bethesda, which should be something that we can, we can find archaeology-wise. Uh, and so, now they found it, and uh, this is what it looks like today. Okay, I'm not very artistic, so I can't really see it very well there. Okay, but you know, for you guys, you know, you could probably see... Uh, how like the pool uh, compared to the my little thing, but how the pools would be down there and these porticos would be up on the top here. Um, but for me, I like to look at it like this better. <laughs> it's just a simple drawing, but it makes more sense in my brain. But this is the five porticos. So basically, five porticos is weird, right? But the porticos are five different sides. So one side, two side, three side, four side, and then the fifth side is the middle. Okay, so there's five different porticos basically, right? And then there were actually, it was one pool, they were connected, the water was connected, but it's actually kind of like two different pools because it had that fifth portico in the middle of it. And so that's what it looks like. Um, so this actually happened in a confirmed location, which is a big deal when talking about the reliability of the Bible and the reliability of the Gospel of John. So that's the first thing we want to know. The second thing is, this is something that nobody else could do. And I think this is a big reason why John puts it in here. Okay, as I said before, in that day and time, there's a lot of people that were seeking healing. Okay, we didn't have modern, we, they didn't have modern medicine, right? But people still got sick. Okay, the average life expectancy was about 40 years old. Okay, that's less than half of what it is right now in the U.S. 
Okay, and so these people, just the culture in general, they were seeking healing, and there was a lot of false gods dedicated to healing. There were a lot of healers. There were this culture of like trying to get um, healed, um, and so. With all that being said, this guy was still ill for 38 years, right? And if you've been ill for 38 years, you've probably been trying a lot of different things, right? Whether good or bad or whatever. But you mean, if I was sick for 38 years, I'd be seeing every doctor I could, right? So this guy had been trying to get healed for forever, but he couldn't get healed. No one else could heal this person. And then Jesus steps up and heals him with one word. That is a very, very powerful miracle. A very powerful miracle. Okay, there's lots of, uh, I said, like I said, there's a lot of um, miracle workers, and none of them can do it. Lee Strobel, if you've ever read the book, um, The Case for Christ, he says uh, that no one compares, and after he does all this study and research, he says no one compares to Jesus in miracles. Meaning that even if you look at Old Testament, or not Old Testament, ancient documents and ancient um, manuscripts, even if you look at those and you compare what people say about Jesus versus what people say about um, you know, other healers. It's just not even a comparison. Uh, the validity of what Jesus did and the things that he did do and what we claim to do is just far above and beyond what every, everybody else was. And this is an example of it. I mean, 38 years. Confirmed 38 years. People knew this guy for 38 years, and yet he was still healed in a word by Jesus. It's a big deal. Um, so, that's the second thing. The second thing, someone... It's something that no one else could do. The miracle is also something that cannot be faked, and we've talked about this past couple weeks. And, you know, I mean, I think it's really important. I do. Because, you know, there's a lot of skeptics out there that say Jesus faked all of his miracles. You know, that's what they say. Or, like, they didn't actually happen and things like that. Uh, but you can't, you can't fake this one. Okay, the, the amount of time that elapsed from this guy being healed to when he... Like, okay, so he'd been ill for 38 years. How old is Jesus at this point? Maybe 30, maybe 31, maybe 29. We don't know, but like somewhere... So this guy's been sick longer than Jesus has been alive. Like, that, you, you can't fake that, right? You can't fake that. And uh, many people today, they like stage miracles... Like, have you guys ever like seen like the stage miracle thing? Oh, okay. You guys haven't. Brent has. Uh, so like, there's these people that they get up on stage and all this huge crowd and they'll say, you know, they'll claim it's you know, from God or whatever, and they'll have plants. They call them plants. So they plant people in the audience. Like they'll plant a guy on crutches, right? And he doesn't actually need crutches. He's on crutches this whole time, right? And uh, he goes up there on his crutches and he says. Be healed. And he'll throw his crutches and be like, I can walk again. Right? I mean, that's serious. That, that's serious. Okay, there, there are people that do that. Okay? There are people that do that. There are people that did that in this day. It's just, that's, I mean, people can make money doing that. And so they do it. Right? And so that does happen. But that couldn't, that couldn't be the case here. Okay? That couldn't be the case here. It couldn't have been staged. Okay? The fact that he was ill for 38 years means he couldn't have staged this. Okay? So... As far as uh, the miracle, Jesus asks him, do you want to be saved? Do you want to be healed? And like I said, the guy says, well, I can't be healed because I can't get in the pool. So he's trusting in this pool to heal him. <laughs> and Jesus just didn't even answer that. He just said, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And um, I think this reply, I've already said it, but I think this reply kind of shows the heart of a man. He's, he's thinking that the pool is what's going to heal him. 
and that's the only thing that's going to heal him. Um, and even after, which is important, okay, but even afterwards, he doesn't give any glory to God. He doesn't give any glory to Jesus. He just gets up and walks away. Can't find Jesus. When he does find Jesus, he doesn't thank him. He doesn't do any of this thing, any of these things. So, finally, we're going to get to the last point, okay? And this is when the deflecting comes into play. At the very beginning, we find deflecting, right? Tim Tebow deflected the glory. Now we're going to look at the malcontent. Okay, these are the people that are not content with what Jesus is doing. Okay, because of his miracle, he stirs some things up. So this is the second half of this, this passage. So let's look at the very end of verse 9, because the very end of verse 9 is the key. Uh, well, it's part of the key of this. It says, Now it was the Sabbath on that day. So Jesus did the miracle on the Sabbath. Look at verse 10. So the Jews were staying, sorry, were saying to the man, the man who was cured, It is a Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them and said, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up my pallet and walk. So they asked him, Who is the man that said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed, he didn't know who it was. For Jesus had slipped away while the crowd was in that place. And afterwards, Jesus found him at the temple. And he said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse happens to you. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus that made him well. And for this reason, because he told the Jews that it was Jesus, and they knew that Jesus did it on the Sabbath, because of that, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. Verse 18 is very important. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but he's also calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. Okay, so first off, okay, when we're looking at the malcontent, they're mad at Jesus because he's making himself equal with God, which he was. And also, he's breaking the Sabbath. Okay, now here's the first, the first thing you need to realize. He, he wasn't actually breaking the Sabbath. There is no law in the Old Testament that says you can't carry an object okay, on the Sabbath. However, the Pharisees had made up certain regulations according to the Sabbath, and one of those was you cannot carry certain objects that are certain sizes and certain weights or whatever. And so they, they said you can't carry um, things, certain objects on the Sabbath. So they see this guy. I don't know if they knew who he was or not. Okay, or that, you know, I don't know if they knew he'd been ill for 38 years or not, but they see him walking, carrying his mat, and the first thing they say is, you can't do that. It's a Sabbath day. Okay, now Jesus did not tell him to break the law because that was not in the law. Okay, it was according to their law, which is important. It was one that they had made up. Okay, so they asked him, why are you carrying your mat? The guy told him, um, the guy who, who, told, who healed me told me to carry it, so I'm carrying it. And they say, who is that? And they said, he said, I don't, know who, I don't know who it was. The guy got away from me. Okay, I didn't, even see, I didn't even get to see who he was. And now Jesus finds the man. I think he finds him on purpose. And um, he says this thing, which we've already talked about. Behold, uh, you've become well. Do not sin anymore, so nothing worse happens to you. Okay, again, I think that he's trying to make him, help him realize that he needs a Savior. Okay, because what do you have to do to be saved? Job. We have one. Got to believe in Jesus for eternal life, and you get it right. But if you don't realize that you need a savior, then we need to realize that, right? And so Jesus, I think, is trying to help him realize that. Okay. 
Um, I think this guy, as I said before, may have like some sort of pride issue or pride problem uh, because he's not grateful or thankful. He doesn't give glory to God in any of this. Um, and Jesus here is showing that sin is worse than physical suffering. Right? Sin is worse than physical suffering. Um, that's what he says in verse 14. So, um, all of this, uh, if you read verse 16 now, he says this is the reason they were persecuting him. They're persecuting Jesus. This is the Jews. And for I think it's a verbal persecution. Um, because it says that he answered them, right? So he, he's answering their persecution by saying, My father is working till now, and I myself am working. And then verse 18 is what we're going to harp on and focus on, okay? Because this is the key to what these guys are doing. It says, For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he's not only breaking the Sabbath, but also he's calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. Now this is key. Why did they want to kill him? Okay, there's several things that we need to know. First thing that we need to know, these guys knew the Scripture. Okay, they knew the scripture and they knew it well. Many of them had it all memorized. Okay, which seems crazy. Um, I think all of them had to have the first five books memorized, right? So they know the law. So do they know that it doesn't say in the law that you're you you know you don't have to pick up your mat and walk? Like, do they know that that's not actually in the law? Yes, they do. I mean, they know that that's not actually in the law. Okay, the second thing is, do they know that God is going to send a Messiah? Yes, they should, right, if, they, if they're reading the law. So they know that there's God coming to earth or there's a Messiah coming to earth through, and they know that that's not actually against the law. Yet they're seeking to kill this guy because he's breaking their law and he's claiming to be God. If they knew the Scriptures and they looked at the Scriptures, they would say, hmm, is this the Messiah, right? So here's the deal. Why do they want to kill him? I think there's two things, and they both go back to glory. Okay, the first thing is, Jesus was taking away their authority. Okay, which takes away their glory. Okay, how is he taking away their authority? He's saying they're wrong, basically, because he told them they was the law, but they said he couldn't. Yeah, he's saying they're wrong, and he's saying, I'm God. Because if Jesus is the Messiah, that takes away authority from them, right? He's right, they're wrong. If Jesus is God, he's right, they're wrong. So he's taking away their authority, and this makes them mad. Right? This makes them mad. Um, it just takes away the authority. And when it takes away the authority and power, it's taking away the glory from them. Right? Second thing it does, it takes away their attention. Okay? Not their attention on someone else, but the attention that was on them. Okay? The, the religious leaders, especially the Pharisees, were known for being the most prestigious religious people in, the, in that time and in that culture. Right? They were the best of the best and the most holy of the holy. Right? Now Jesus comes in and says, that's not, you're doing it wrong. Okay? And all these people are seeking now Jesus instead of the Pharisees. So he's taking away their attention, which takes away glory. He's taking away glory. So Jesus is taking away their glory. They're mad and they want to kill him for it. Okay? These people were seeking glory for themselves rather than deflecting glory to God. If they were deflecting glory to God, then they would have said, you know what? If this guy's right, God will you know, bless him. If he's the Messiah, if he's not the Messiah, we're going to figure it out pretty quick. Right? In fact, this is in Acts 5, 34-39. This is a Pharisee named Gamaliel. Okay? And Peter and those guys were, you know, they were preaching the gospel and all this stuff. And this is what he says, and I like it because he goes back to God and puts it back on God. Look, he says, But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And those are the, some of the apostles. 
And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care of what you purpose to do with these men. For some time ago, uh, Theus rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed, and all who followed him dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone, for if the plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. So look what he says. He goes back to God. He says, hey, listen, if this is from God, you ain't stopping it. And he says, and if it's from man, God's going to stop it. It's going to peter out. It's not a big deal. That was just not what these Pharisees are doing. These Pharisees are saying, listen, this guy's taking away uh, our authority, our attention, the glory that's coming to us. He's breaking our rule. Our Sab- that's our Sabbath rule. We made that. And he thinks he can break it? I'm going to break him. Right? I mean, that's what, that's what they're saying, right? Because it says that they were, uh, they were mad that he's breaking the Sabbath, but he's not even breaking God's Sabbath. He's breaking their Sabbath. Right? And so they are seeking glory for themselves, and they don't like that Jesus is taking it away. We think very poorly of these guys for doing this, but a lot of times we do that as well. We seek our own glory instead of the glory of God. Or when people give us glory, we don't deflect it to others or God, and we just absorb the glory for ourselves. Okay, it's very easy to do. We desire the glory of men. This is John chapter 12. We'll look at it later on down the road. Um, this is talking about some believers, actually. Okay, this is talking about some believing Pharisees and believing religious leaders. It said that they were hiding that they believed in Jesus because they loved the approval of man rather than the approval of God. It's actually hiding that they believed in Jesus for eternal life because they liked the approval and the glory of of man that man gave which we shouldn't be seeking that glory okay we shouldn't be seeking that glory and that attention in that way okay so we do what the pharisees do um, a lot of times so at the end of this this third sign it's very interesting okay because no one gives glory to god except jesus in this whole account okay and also remember at the very beginning we said let's look for who believes every time he does a sign who believes in this third sign? Or because of this third sign? Nobody. Third sign. Nobody that the Scripture references. They don't see anybody in Scripture that believes because of this sign. That's why I said it's a very unique and very strange sign. Um, strange not as in like weird, but strange as in just different from a lot of the other signs. Because we don't see a lot of good coming from it. It's just good. I mean, Jesus gives glory to the Father when he says, my Father and I are working till now and I can't do anything without the Father. Um, and so he gives glory to God, but no one else does. No one gives glory to God. No one thanks Jesus. No one even, the God's healed barely even seems happy that he's healed. I mean, I'm sure he was, but like, there's not really any indication of this grateful attitude. So it's just a weird thing. Um, and basically what comes of it is people getting mad that they are um, they're getting the glory taken away from themselves. Okay, and so what's our impact? Use your words to deflect glory. Okay, that's what Team Tebow did at the very start in our illustration. And if you go through and you look at a lot of the miracles, um, a lot of people do that. Um, when Jesus heals them or whatever, they give glory to God. Jesus always gives glory to God. Jesus always gives glory to God. Um, he deflects glory, and He doesn't even need to deflect glory because He is God, right? 
but we should be of all people deflecting glory to God. So when somebody comes up and you know they're giving us praise, you know we we want to take it, but really we should deflect it. You know I had this uh, this pastor one time. That's when I was early on in my I don't know internships of like teaching and stuff like that. But um, people would come up, you know, after I was done like with a sermon or whatever or a lesson, and they'd say. You know, you did a really good job. And I'd say, oh, you know, all glory to God, because that's what I was taught to say, right? And it's good. But I had this pastor come up to me one time, and he said, dude, you shouldn't say that. You know, they just want to hear you say thank you. So just say thank you, just take it. Just take it. I mean, you do good, you're doing the work of God, so you should just take it. And I took him seriously, and I started doing that. I started saying thanks. Thank you. Thank you. And, it, I mean, it's good to say thank you in general, but, like, uh, I started just kind of taking it. And... As the years went by, I started to realize, like, that wasn't probably the best advice. Like, I should be saying no. I mean, that's God. Like, I could sit up here and teach the best lesson ever, but if the Holy Spirit's not convicting people, this doesn't matter, right? There's been many, many lessons that I've taught that were horrible and borderline wrong, and yet God still used them in the lives of people because it's His Word and it's His Holy Spirit, right? And so... What should I do? Should I deflect that glory and say, no, that glory goes to God? Or should I say, oh, thanks. You know, I, I am I am pretty decent. You know? And we can do that with anything. We can do it with sports, school, anything. Because God gave you all of your talents, all of your abilities. He gave you everything. Alright? And so you can deflect that glory or you can absorb it. Which one are you going to be? Are you going to be like the Pharisees or like Jesus? You should be like Jesus, just if you're wondering. Okay, deflect the glory. Um, give the glory to God. Alright, let's pray. Thanks for joining us for True to the Bible Podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this lesson. If you have any questions about this lesson or any of the other True to the Bible podcasts, don't hesitate to contact us at hunter.davis at stillwaterbible.org. Thanks again for tuning in. We hope that you join us for our next lesson.